visit the Boundary Waters in the summer, visit in the winter. Just remember that we're only borrowing it. We're only borrowing it. It's just in our care for a little while and then it'll be for somebody else to enjoy. Commit to it in the long term. Protect it for generations to come. Hello, and welcome to the Friends of the Boundary Waters podcast. I'm Chris Knopp, the Friends Executive Director. We have a very special guest on our podcast today, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. While you may know him through his public service roles, you may not know that Attorney General Ellison has a deep love of the Boundary Waters. In our conversation, we are able to discuss the importance of wilderness, clean water, and environmental protection, and take questions from engaged citizens who joined us for this presentation. I'm going to turn this over now to my colleague, Max Kiley, our legal director, who will introduce Attorney General Keith Ellison. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Attorney General Ellison needs no introduction, but you may know him as a fierce advocate and protector of the environment. I had the honor and privilege to serve as a manager of the Environmental and Natural Resources Division, as well as a staff attorney in the Residential Utilities Division under Keith. And, you know, he's, he's a fantastic boss and a fantastic public servant and even better human being. And we're very lucky to have him. So Keith, everybody knows you as a public servant. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself as a person? Well, one of the things about me as a person, uh, Max, is that I do love the Boundary Waters. And I just want to thank you for your kind words. I definitely feel the same way. It was a great joy working with you, your commitment, passion uh, to uh, our environment, our natural world, our built environment really is outstanding. And it was a joy to be be your colleague. But as a person, you know, look, I, I, I my idea of a great time is walking through the woods canoeing on a lake or a river, uh, watching the sunset, watching the sun rise. It's my idea of a good time. And, uh, you know, my wife and I, we love to go to the North Shore. We, we you know, Madeline Island. We love to go to Grand Marais. But, hey, you know, we like just walking around uh, McCosca, you know, or we, you know, we just, just, just getting on the bicycle or walking or canoeing. It's what uh, we love to do. Um, I did not grow up uh, doing it all the time. Uh, my 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 mom did provide opportunities for us through uh, scouting way back in the day when I was a kid. Uh, but it really wasn't something that my family was that into. But my mom grew up on a farm, so she had a commitment to, you know, just uh, she she loved nature. She loved animals. She loved, you know, being outside. And uh, so I did get that ad naturally. So that's just a little about me. I got four kids, married to Monica Hurtado, uh, and uh, just, uh, you know, that's a little bit about me. I could, I could keep Keith, going. Uh, you, 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 uh, you, you mentioned how that you, uh, you, you didn't grow up uh, necessarily uh, being outside, but but through the Boy Scouts, you got connected to the outdoors. Maybe yeah. you want to talk about one of your first big adventures in the outdoors and uh, um, talk about that big trip, the big trip that you made with your brother. Oh yeah, that trip. You know, as you asked me about, uh, you know, big trips and stuff, you know. I did remember after that that I had done overnights in the tent and stuff like that. But the big the big deal was me and my brother Leonard, 
uh, and uh, our friends from the neighborhood, about three other guys. Uh, you know, I don't know where Leonard figured it out, but he he figured out that there was this place in uh, northern Michigan called uh, called Isle Royal. And he said, we got to go there. And he was about 16. I was about 14. And and for some reason, my mom let us let us go. We packed up the car. We bought a few things that we didn't have. And we set off and we drove and we drove and we got up there. And we got on a little you know, we had to leave our car behind. They dropped us off at the at the pier, and then we just had backpacks and started walking. I don't think we mapped it out. <laughs> this was the most poorly planned hiking trip ever. But we did, we got out there, we walked, and you know, and you know, we thought, will we see moose? Will we see wolves? Will we see something like that? And we didn't see that much, but we did see one day in the middle of our campground, we had there was this giant black fox, and it probably wasn't that big, but it seemed really big to me. And, uh, you know, we just had like a, a marvelous time. And, you know, I don't think we packed enough food, but eventually, you know, we, we made it through. And I, by the time we went home, I don't know what we were eating by that time, but it was it was fun then. And we had a great time. And it just put me in the frame of mind that, um, one, I learned wanted to learn more about, you know, uh, camping, canoeing, paddling, uh, wanted to protect our natural environment. Uh, and, uh, you know, my brother, uh, he's, he's a great guy. Uh, I don't go camping with him that much anymore, but, uh, he actually brought his kids up doing it. And, um, but, you know, we like to get together and talk about where we're going next. It's one of our fun things to do. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's a fantastic story. Um, you know, I, and I just want to give a reminder to uh, the participants, uh, if you have any questions for Keith, feel free to enter them in the, the Q&A and we'll have a little session at the end where we can sort of discuss uh, uh, some of the questions that come up. Um, and and uh, very quickly, Keith, you know, before we get into your um, your introduction to the Boundary Waters and your love for the Boundary Waters, I, I was just curious, you know, um, you know, how what public service means to you and, and if there are any formative uh, life experiences that sort of shaped your view of, of public service? Well, you know, it's funny to think about that. That's a good question. My mom was a social worker and um, my dad was a physician. Uh, he was a psychiatrist and both of them spent time helping people who um, were in desperate need of help, you know, uh, my my mom was the son was the daughter of uh, two teachers uh, from Natchitoches Parish, Louisiana, and um, my mom grew up in uh, deep segregation, and so so much so that her father was organizing to stop uh, to try to organize black voters in like the 1950s, uh, and you know my mom the, the house was targeted through threats uh, so often that my grandfather uh, put her in boarding school in Lafayette, Louisiana, because they just didn't know if anybody was gonna really do what they were threatening to do. They boycotted my grandfather. They wouldn't let him uh, buy gasoline. He had to put tractor fuel in his car. I don't know how that worked out, but he did because they wouldn't sell him gasoline because he was stirring up a fuss and uh, everything's fine around here. Why are, you, why are you making everybody you know, uncomfortable? So that was uh, Frank Martinez, who was my grandfather. And, you know, um, so that those are the people who, who raised me. Right. So uh, 
I uh, I kind of grew up all, all I have four brothers. I don't I'm, I haven't been blessed with any sisters, but I do have two older brothers and two younger ones. And, you know, all of them are in some form of serving the public. My older brother is a family care doctor. My brother, older Nick, my other brother is a, um, is a Baptist minister. And my two younger brothers uh, are very active in their community and volunteer all the time. And they're both lawyers and they do everything from legal aid to working on campaigns. And, you know, that that's that's just we we were raised. That's the way we expect it to, to behave in community. So it's really not that unusual that I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, we all do it. Some some version of it. You know, Keith, as you were growing up, was there any pivotal moment or experience that kind of directed you into public service? Was there something that that it, as you were growing up or was this sort of your or were you, or were you surrounded by that throughout your whole life? Well, you know, I so there's there's uh, there's public service and then there's electoral office. Two different things in my mind. Um, my mother used to always say, you know, Martin Luther King never held elected office. Neither did Rosa Parks and uh, neither did so many others who've done so much for the nation. And yet, uh, you know, others did. Right. You know, where would we be without, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the EPA Act? Uh, where would we be without environmental laws? Uh, and they had to be enacted by elected representatives. So we need both, right? It's not like we need one or we don't need the other. We need both. We need activists, educators, and we need public officials uh, to work together to uh, make for a better world. Uh, but no, I, I didn't really grow up thinking that I wanted to be an elected official. In fact, I didn't like or trust any politicians till I was about 34 years old. Um, but I, you know, I ran into this guy named um, uh, Paul Wellstone, you know, and I just, you know, I thought that, wow, here's a guy who's an elected office holder and he's pretty real with it and committed to what he's doing. And because in my mind, it wasn't clear that you could be in office and pursue your, um, your, your, your dream, pursue a public agenda, agenda that was in the public interest. Uh, but you can, you certainly can. And, you know, uh, knowing, meeting him and getting to know him taught me something about the cynicism of the youth, right? <laughs> you know, uh, here this guy was uh, what, easily old enough to be my parent, but he was optimistic and believed in anything could happen if we organized and came together. And he inspired me. And uh, I remember when I was running for office the first time uh, in 2002, I was expecting to knock doors with him and then we all got the fateful news uh, that his plane went down in Ely and then learned that it was a, had a tragic outcome. So, uh, yeah, that he that's my electoral thing. But before that, I was organizing. I mean, when I was going to Wayne State, I was organizing my college to withdraw money from South African apartheid. I wrote for the school paper. I did a radio program on public affairs. I was organizing protests regarding uh criminal justice reform issues um <laughs> i was doing a bunch of stuff but i never thought until i until i really got to get to know paul i really never really saw myself as an elected official you know keith kind of pulling on that that thread a little bit you know a lot of young people today are are cynical or or somehow dismayed by by what's going on in the public arena what can you 
tell them to inspire them now that to that public service, whether an elected office or all those other ways of public service you talked about are are real and, and meaningful? Well, let me say this, you know, if your heart um, yearns for justice, if you want to protect our natural world, if you want to make sure that people can experience the beauty of nature, the truth is you have to act. You don't have to be an elected official, but maybe you do. I mean, um, sometimes you just, it, I actually like politicians who don't really want to be politicians. I, you know, I kind of favor those types. Um, people ask me, why in the world would I leave Congress? I said, well, because I never was in love with it. I was in love with public service, but I was never in love with holding some title, you know? Um, and so I would say, you know, you, you cannot expect us to be able to take action on climate, protect the boundary waters, protect kids from lead and other neurotoxins, and you're not going to do anything other than tweet. We need you to get involved. We need you to organize people. Important thing for young people to know is you don't have to be, you don't have to have a PhD in molecular science in order to be an effective environmentalist. You know, you you there's a lot of aspects uh, to work on. There's the policy side. There's the business side of it. You know, uh, the truth is, is that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be thought of in terms of how to energize in, in our world uh, in a cleaner, greener way. Uh, there's a whole lot of ways to be effective and helpful. Uh, and, uh, you know, the science side of it is just, just one of it. And I only mention that because I was talking to a young person just the other day who was saying to me, well, I don't really know anything about, you know, carbon monoxide and all that. I, I didn't do well in chemistry, so I don't know if I could be an environmentalist. I said, Good news is you don't have to be. There's a whole lot of others. You like breathing? Okay, yeah. So you're an environmentalist. So, you know, there's the medical aspect of it. There's so many parts to be helpful and get in where you fit in. Artists, I'll tell you this, one, one underutilized resource in terms of inspiring and galvanized people is art. And we need folks in art can again is a whole world. We need writers. I read a book about a guy who um an African-American guy who, who canoed down the Mississippi. You know, I can't remember the name of the book, but I remember I read this book about this guy maybe 20 years ago who just got in a canoe and canoed down the and he talked about his journey. And I'm like, wow, that's exciting. You know, that sounds really cool, quite frankly. And boy, you'd be in good shape after you finish that trip. Uh, but, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to be involve writers, painters, we need film, we need music, you know, all to help inspire people to action, inspire people to care, you know. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of ways to get involved. I'd say we also need people to run for office. Some of y'all would be great politicians, but you've got to, you, you just got to throw your name in the hat and uh, put your heart out there and do the best you can. And some, some folks really, really should run. And some folks, they don't really want to do it, but, um, Maybe we needed to. <laughs> yeah. So Keith, you mentioned that you, you know your heart really wasn't in being a you know U.S. representative. Do you feel uh, you know what what if any do you, uh, changes do you think that you're able to make as a Minnesota Attorney General that you weren't able to make as a, a Congressperson? Yeah. And let me just be clear. I was honored to be in Congress. I thought it was a tremendous um, responsibility. 
people trusted me with for 12 years and I was and I'm deeply deeply grateful for the opportunity to serve there so I don't want to be misunderstood very important work we need good people in Congress what I will say uh, though is that uh, as Attorney General um, you know we were able to shut down um, Northern Metals which is in North Minneapolis and Northeast Minneapolis and it's polluting people putting uh, weird stuff into the air that we all have to breathe. Uh, but you can't do that in Congress. Right. You know, we we took action uh, against um, the uh, the lead manufacturer uh, water gremlins. Uh, you, we couldn't do that. We couldn't. I mean, we we were getting reports that the people who worked in that plant were 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 not given adequate equipment, not giving adequate uh, time to you know dress up and dress down would go home and then expose their children to uh, to lead, which is very dangerous uh, for any human being, but certainly a developing one. And, um, you know, we were able to, to deal with them. You know, uh, you know, Max, you and I did a lot of work that I'm very, very proud of. You know, we, you know, we, whether it was agency representation, which we're not really in the driver's seat, or whether we initiate action on our own, you know, there's just a number of things that we couldn't do uh, unless we, I was as the AG, and uh, I can tell you that environmental protection is a is a major uh, priority of mine. Um, but I want to let everybody know it's not as if you, I get to do whatever I want. Uh, the agencies, I don't control the agencies. I control our office at the AG's office. But oftentimes we're in the role of representing a client, and they're the ones who decide the ultimate questions. But it is, but we can enforce the law. You know, oftentimes it's not that we don't have good laws on the books, it's that we don't enforce them. Uh, the reason why, um, you know, somebody would want to, you know, cut government is because they don't want a bunch of government lawyers insisting that health and safety laws be obeyed. And so um, that, that sort of is the thing. You know, we need people who are going to say, no, the law says you can't do that and you can't do that. And if you do, we're going to end up in court. Thank, thank you for that, uh, Keith. Here, I have this uh, beautiful map of the Boundary Waters behind me here, and, and I know you have a, a, a real affection and love for the for the Boundary Waters. And and perhaps you could could tell us and our audience here how you first got connected to the Boundary Waters. Well, so as some of y'all know, I. Um, spent the first 16 years of my law practice. I've been a lawyer now for 32 years, but I spent the first 16 years of my law practice uh, basically uh, as a, um, as a, as a, as a criminal, either a public defender, a private sector criminal defense lawyer, including juvenile and civil rights. Uh, and then uh, did uh, some uh, personal injury cases. I used to run the legal rights center, which is still rolling to this day. And I was at the legal rights center for like, five and a half, six years. And one day I was in court, juvenile court, and uh, the judge after the end of the uh, hearing says, hey, Ellison, come here. And I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> so, I, so, I, so I come back in. I say, yes, Your Honor, how can I help you? He says, uh, what do you got going? Uh, there's this thing called After Today Group Home, and uh, they have a trip to, to take the, the kids, the residents up to the boundary waters and um, the court would consider it a favor if you were an adult supervisor on the trip. 
And then he stopped and didn't say another word, waiting on me to respond. And he had, by the way, he, I was still standing on the, I was standing in front of him and he was on top of that bench, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, judge, when am I doing this? <laughs> he said, oh, here's a card, call this guy, you know, you can, you can arrange it within the next two, three weeks. Thank you very much, Mr. Ellison. <laughs> next thing you know, I'm calling this guy. I'm like, what in the world? But, you know, uh, we talked and we met the guys and uh, I said, okay, this would be fun. Maybe. <laughs> so so we met up and we took the van up there and uh and I don't I don't really know which I don't remember which camp we went to. Maybe it was was you know there there's a few of the 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 inputs uh the spots, right? But we went up there and we went and we had a great time and the kids argued. I got a little annoyed with them complaining. Uh, but then I sort of just saw the beauty of them, and I saw these kids all court involved. By the way, all these were court involved kids. None of them were, you know, none of them were the children of bank presidents, but like that, you know. And but these were these tough kids, and and but the but the thing is, the world had dealt with them with toughness and never with compassion. And so we get up there and. One little girl who definitely would cuss anybody out. She was tough as nails. She, uh, you know, uh, asked to uh, walk with me when I'm going on just sort of a hike to get some air after that, you know, we we finished for the day. We sat near some rocks and looked up and we saw the most amazing light show in the sky, you know. Uh, and this girl, you know, here she was just amazed and ooing and odding. And she just, she seemed like really a kid, a 13, 14 year old child amazed at something that she had never done before. Because for her, the world was North Minneapolis or the South side of Chicago, but it was not, you know, learning how to paddle a canoe, learning how to carry the canoe, learning how to contribute to her camp. She made pancakes for us. And um, she was very proud of these pancakes, man. I mean, she's, you know, and when and when when the kids complimented her, uh, she was very proud. And one of them thought that they would be a kid and like, you know, crack on her and you know, like, you know, how kids like insult each other gratuitously, right? And I kind of gave one of them a look, and the kid said, "No, no, 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 they're good, they're good." And she knew, and she knew that they meant it. You know what I mean? And she just was. You know, I ran into her. She's a young woman now. She has her own children. And, uh, you know, she, she lives in North Minneapolis and she's works a pretty working class job, but she's not involved in, in, in any court systems. And uh, and she's uh, doing fine, taking care of her, her business and leading her life. And she will tell her kids when, you know, if I'm in, you know, there's a Cup Foods, there's a Cup Foods up there on Broadway. And I run into her there a few times and she said, this is Mr. Ellis. Mr. Ellison took me camping when I was your age. And she's just got, it's, it meant everything to her. She never forgot it. And she stops me. Another guy, young man who I took, his name was Ramon. He uh, be, ended up being a barber and he was, uh, he stops me all the time. And, you know, when I met him, he was a smooth faced little kid. Now he's a balding and has a big beard. <laughs> <laughs> and I could barely recognize him because I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And this is Ramon. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, wow. But, you know, I mean, it's just 
transformative. And everybody on this call knows that there's something truly magic uh, going on there. You know, that's that's certainly that transformative power of, of the Boundary Waters is something that we believe at our core here. And we've developed a program called No Boundaries to the Boundary Waters that where we connect uh, 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 people of all backgrounds and through Perfect. our through the classroom and through transformative wilderness canoe trips. We this year we'll be we'll get over 70 uh, young people into the wilderness on on, on full scholarships. So so we very much believe in the, the transformative power. Of, of the wilderness and and seeing the northern lights like you and that young young girl now now woman saw you know that's uh, uh, that that really is transformative and and kind of pulls a lot of layers back and and uh, is is very is very calming and uh, yeah. you know and, and Keith so what what has the the boundary waters done what does it mean to you personally. Well, what it well, so first of all, I think that a lot of us Minnesotans, you know, we just think that, oh, you know, I, I'm from Minnesota, you know, nice place. We don't realize that we live not only next to probably the largest freshwater body in the world, but we live right next to these boundary waters, which are a jewel of the world. Uh, if you go to the boundary waters, you're going to run into German campers, you know, Brazilian <laughs> campers. <laughs> you're going to run into people from the world. I mean, am I right about this, Chris? You, you yeah. will, people the the world over know how important this is. I, what does it mean to me? Well, we've been entrusted with one of the great natural wonders um, on planet Earth. And we've been... And, and it's been put in our care for as long as we walk this earth. And we've got to do all we can to protect it. It is not simply a commodity for somebody who wants to extract wealth from it. Um, it is a treasure that we have been entrusted to care for. And so that's what it means to me. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's a, the the Boundary Waters is the, uh, America's most visited uh, wilderness area. Over 150,000 people visit it each year. It's like you said, you know, people from all over, uh, you know, every state, all over the world. It, it truly is amazing. Well, you know what, Max, I, I got to admit, I didn't know that. You know, I mean, I would have thought that it would have been like Grand Tetons or, you know, yeah. or... or yeah, the national, so there, you know, a wilderness area is different than a national oh, park. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Got national parks uh, draw more, uh, Yellowstone draws slightly more people, I would say. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's uh, in terms of the wilderness areas, it's it's the most uh, visited uh, yep. per year. And, and so, you know, what, do you have any, uh, from your trips up in the Boundary Waters, do you have any uh, memorable moments or scary moments that, that, uh, that you can recall off the top of your head? Hmm. You know what? I just got. Yeah. I. I mean, I'm sure I do. Uh, you know, I. 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 I just shared some moments when I was not in the boundary waters, but I met with somebody who I shared the boundaries with, boundary waters with years later. But while I was there, um, you know, I. I just. I just remember. You know, I do remember uh, some guy, uh, and I. I didn't see this, but. We got a lecture on not drinking water too close to the shore because of Giardia. 
and uh, somebody told me that they had a bad run in with it. And, um, you know, and, you know, but I didn't have to experience that. Thank goodness. Uh, I remember going on some portages where I felt like, well, is this, this going to end sometime? You know, uh, I mean, but I, but I got to admit, I don't, I just have this series of just really positive feelings, you know, about, about it, you know, um, you don't even remember all the flies and the mosquitoes. You just, just I just remember all the, all the great times and all the, all the fun moments, you know, and, you know, jumping out and swimming, you know, and uh, just on a whim. And I remember, you know, getting, getting really sunburnt and I, you know, I, you know there's just all these, you know, those, those, those aluminum canoes, you gotta be, those things will, uh, you gotta watch out. You need to get some sunscreen on if you're doing that. So but I guess I wish I did have like one particular isolated memory that uh, was particularly uh, memorable, but it's just sort of just a string of of moments that were that were so so good, you know. And um, yeah, so that's what I got for you, Max. I wish I had a, a like a discrete <laughs> story in the Boundary Waters uh, other than the ones I've told you already. We're going to take a short break here to ask. Do you need help planning for your next Boundary Waters trip? Visit our website at friends-bwca.org where you'll find amazing trip resources, route maps, articles, and free guides to prepare for your next BWCA adventure. We have uh, some questions from the, our, our participants here, and some of them want to know how, how you view the, the sort of mining issue up there in general. Uh, uh, Keith, so yeah. how do you view the, the, the mining issue up there? Yeah, I've not been supportive of Twin Metals. I'm concerned about that. Uh, I think that any mining in the boundary, boundary waters is, is definitely something that um, should have the highest level of scrutiny. I can't imagine being a supportive of any project like that. It would have to go through intensive scrutiny. And my thought is that, you know, it would be a bad idea. I can't imagine how you would protect the place uh, from such a thing, uh, very pleased. But I'll tell you that, you know, the folks in Ely, uh, some of them agree with me. I know that, you know, there's, there are a lot of folks, uh, who, who believe that this is an important, uh, resource that must be protected, you know. So, uh, no, I, I feel that it's the wrong thing. I'm glad that, uh, the Biden administration, um, you know, rejected those leases. I think that's a good thing. And I certainly support it support that action of rejecting those leases. Yeah, there's a, there's another question here, Keith. How, how are the midterm elections, you know, uh, both at a state and federal level, uh, important as far as protecting the boundary waters, just from your perspective? Well, <laughs> you know, let me tell you, how many people on this call have ever heard someone say, this is the most important election in a lifetime? <laughs> well, I, I don't think people are making it up. I think what has happened is that as the climate has changed, as we've gotten closer to, um, you know, to the point where we can't reverse it or even mitigate it, uh, as other sort of uh, social measures have gotten worse, each election, it seems like the stakes are a little higher. In this election, you know, we're dealing with people who uh, tried to violently overturn the last presidential election, uh, literally, um, injuring uh, police officers uh, trying to protect capital. So, I mean, my view is that this is a um, top priority election. It's extremely important. 
Uh, and if we, we've got to be active, we've got to be involved. We've got to reach out to people. We can't just talk to the people we're used to talking to all the time. We've got to talk to some new people. We've got to talk to people in industry. We've got to talk to people in business. We've got to talk to people in the mining world and say, look, you know, there might be appropriate places to do this, but not here. <laughs> you know, um, you know, we cannot, um, we cannot afford the luxury of purism. We've got to be reaching out, engaging people, using story, being persuasive. And that's what we simply got to do. I see this election as extremely important. And you can bet that um, if this election goes well for people who care about the boundary waters, uh, that'll put uh, energy behind the movement to protect the boundary waters. But the opposite is also true. I mean, if the folks who, you know, might think it's a pretty place but don't really care that much, you know, the people who think that it's just fine to dig out, you know, dig dig it up and grind it up and see what they can, you know, pull out of there to make them a, a turn a buck. You know, I mean, you know, those folks will be encouraged if they if they if the friends of the boundary waters don't do well in the next election. So I would say that uh, this is a good time to ask yourself, do I know 10 people who will vote for the boundary waters? Uh, and of course, the boundary waters is on the ballot. It's absolutely on the ballot, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, you know, certainly certainly in the, when President Biden was elected, that was a boundary waters election. And, and, and depending on how that election went would determine whether or not, you know, this great um, rural, rural uh, site of, uh, of, of natural beauty and wilderness was going to remain that or something else. So, and, and this election is the same. So I would just say, let's think creatively. Let's, and let's be energetic in our advocacy. You know, Keith, that's, that's certainly something we agree with wholeheartedly at Friends of the Boundary Waters, that this is a, 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 an essential election for the for the future. And and one of the, the things you mentioned was engaging in dialogue. And that's something that we also see is very important, that that we talk to people that have different perspectives than, than we have. And in this past summer, we opened just before the, the July 4th holiday, an office in downtown Ely. And, and uh, we really want to be part of those communities for the long haul and, and kind of share those conversations and, and stories where we talk to people that differ with us on the mining issue and, and, uh, and all the people that are with us. And, and there are a lot of silent people that are kind of in between that want to go about their lives there. But, but that sort of uh, civic engagement uh, of you know, there are people that are called to elected office like yourself and then all the people out there that are that are are, are called to be active other ways and and for everyone on on the on this program right now that that uh, however you're called whether to elected office or or just being active in the communities or on behalf of the boundary waters we really need you we need that civic engagement and and uh, uh, to carry us through the, this election and the, the next generation here. So, so right on for, for the, this being such an, 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 an important election here. And, can, I uh, add, can I add something, if you don't mind? Sure, um, please. I mean, and I think folks, some folks on, on, on the call might have the Boundary Waters as their main public thing that they're concerned about. Other folks might be on the call who are particularly concerned about 
women's rights and then in the Dobbs decision. Other people might be on the call who, you know, uh, really care about, you know, their ability to hunt and fish. You know, uh, there, there might be a wide, there might be a diverse group of people on the call. My point is, find the people, you show me the people who are like the Boundary Waters is a, is a consumable, um, you know, just a financial asset for somebody to try to extract money out of. You show me the people who believe that, and I'll show you the people who don't care about you being able to hunt and fish, who don't care uh, about women's rights. I mean, I mean, it's who don't care about justice in our society, who don't, who are fine with a lot of you know of the things that make our world less less good. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm just saying, I just you know, anybody who who won't listen to the important plea on behalf of the um, boundary waters, you know, uh, I guess my point is there's a lot of reasons for people who have different priorities to band together around this, right? Um, if we can win here, there's a lot of other things we can protect. I mean, if somebody doesn't care about the boundary waters, do they, do they care about, do they care about people's rights? Do they care about people's livelihoods? Do they care about, uh, people trying to, uh, run a business that does, um, tour guiding and outfitting and uh, other critical things that people need. And, and I'll just say this, you know, the boundary waters are, no, no, you know, if, if we destroy the boundary waters, then the one thing that'll attract people to Northern Minnesota in that area is will be gone, right? No, nobody, I mean, think about Glacier, right? If we go, let's say we go wreck Glacier in Montana, is anybody ever going to want to, you know, uh, everything around Glacier is named after the Glacier Cafe, the Glacier Restaurant, the, the, you know, the, the Glacier this and that. Well, nobody ever says the uh, the mountain cap removal cafe. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's just the, the, the reason that motivates people and attracts people. And, and, and if you take that away, then your 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 uh, hopes to create economic viability in an area like around like around the boundary waters goes away, but so so protecting the boundary waters is what's going to keep your economic viability. And I was talking to a guy uh, in Kenya, not Kenya, Tanzania, who was talking about why they believe that they've got to protect the animals in Ngorogoro and other places. They said, "Well, look, we could try to exploit it, but then <coughs> where would our economy be?" Protecting this natural asset is how we earn a living. So there is a there is a pragmatic economic reality to protecting the boundary waters, particularly if you live in that area. Yeah, the, 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 that's a great answer, Keith. And, and you know, um, your your answer to that sort of segues into the next question, which is, um, you know, what would your response be to someone that says that they support mining, but they also support support the boundary waters, right? Like, you know, we live here, too. We don't want to destroy where we live. And how does that how does your answer, uh, you know, differ with respect to traditional iron mining versus, you know, copper sulfide mining? Yeah, I think that, you know, some people try to oversimplify and say it's just crushing up rock. Not really. The processes are different. The processes affect things differently. Uh, and I think that it's important to understand the copper sulfide mines are different and, and, and we don't, we generally don't do them around uh, large water bodies uh, because of the 
the leaching and the drip that happens and uh, the downstream effects that can occur. You know, so I think that uh, it's important to get specific about the science of the differences between ferrous mining and copper nickel mining. They're not exactly the same. But I've had conversations where people say, oh, they're the same. It's just crushing rock. Well, now the, chemi the chemical composition of those things is not the same. The process is not the same. And uh, the effects will not be the same. I'm a friend. I'm a friend. I'm a friend. We're friends. We're friends. Do you want to be a friend of the Boundary Waters? Join the movement to fight for clean water and help foster the next generation of BWCA enthusiasts today. Connect with us, donate, and learn more about membership at friends-bwca.org. You know, in your in your comments, Keith, you talked about how we really don't realize how blessed we are sometimes with all the with the boundary waters and all the water resources in our state here. And in over the last couple of weeks, we've seen stories in the national news about the Colorado River drying up. And and you know, this is uh, this is our 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 what we're charged with here to protect this uh, this resource and right. and protect it for the next seven generations down the line here. And and we we sometimes take it for granted that we're a land of more than 10,000 lakes and the, the Boundary Waters has more than 1,000 a, a lakes. Maybe you want to talk about just protecting water more generally and, and the importance of that. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, we live in a world where water is a, as a thing that people need uh, is growing more precious, right? And yet here we are uh, in the land of 10,000 lakes and we got impaired waters. Right. Right. So we got where we're, we literally are, you know, got all the water that anybody would ever want. And we and so we treat it as if it's a, a infinite resource and it is not. So we've we've got to be better steward. We've got to up our game in terms of our uh, our water management, uh, generally speaking. Uh, and this has to do with a whole wide range. And I just think, you know, uh, folks who, you know, work on like clean water action and others who just work on water all the time. Uh, you know, and so this is this is very important. We've got to be better stewards of the water. And I think, look, is the, at the Attorney General's office, if you all become aware that there's some issues that we need to do to protect the water, we, we do view it as our job. We have uh, an environmental group that we're proud of and uh, is eager to do the work. Uh, and so, you know, we actually went out and got a grant from NYU University to get two more uh, folks to help us do environmental uh, stewardship. You know, so we're we're always looking to add to our group uh, because we view it as a top priority thing. But uh, I would say that when you're looking around, when you look at the fires in out in the West Coast, you're looking at you know the 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 dryness uh, and the um, drought that uh, so many areas have seen over the last few years, we've got to be much better stewards of our water resources and care for them in far greater degree. And the water that people we all depend on is far more precious than the profit margins uh, that some private company is just going to pull out of Minnesota and then run back to, I don't know, Chile or somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for that. And, and you know, um, certainly don't want to put you on the hot seat. And so if you feel uncomfortable answering this question, feel free. But, you know, sure. 
why do you feel, um, if you have an opinion on this, why senators, you know, Smith and Klobuchar have been sort of silent on uh, the issues of, of uh, mining near the boundary waters? And, and well, well, the, the answer is pretty simple. I mean, it's a highly sensitive political issue. Um, look, I don't make any comment. I know I don't make any judgment about <laughs> what they're saying. I will say, however, that we as a community have got to really discuss this issue because on the one hand, you have the environment. You have the boundary waters. On the other hand, you have people who live in these local communities who are right when they say, you know, these mining jobs have been family sustaining and fuel the middle class for generations and have, uh, you know, you, you've got to respect what people you know do for a living it's part of their identity it's part of their heritage and they see that as their ticket to economic sustainability and viability and so this is the crux of the conflict you know when if you're a politician and and you have a constituency base that is environmentalists and uh, people who work in the mining industry um it's hard to ask them to pick one or the other you know, we're constantly trying to look for ways to help everybody come out ahead as opposed to one wins and one loses. That's why, you know, you, you find, and I, I don't, and again, I'm not speaking for them too. Uh, I don't know. And I can't judge why, why that's there. They do or don't do what they do, but I can tell you uh, as a DFL politician, it is, it is, it is a fraught issue. Uh, it, there's just no way to win. And I can tell you that it makes it not that easy to go up to. I mean, it's a lot more comfortable. I'll be very candid with you. It's a whole lot more comfortable to go up to, um, to go down to Southern Minnesota than to go to Northern Minnesota. Cause you go to Northern Minnesota, people are going to say, are you with the mine or not? And if you are with it, then I like you. And if you're not, I don't like you. And, and it's just hostile, you know, and, and it's, and it's tough. And there's very, and what we need is people who are trying to look for the solution that gets everybody through. You can't blame people for wanting to be able to make a living where they grew up and where they know every, and where they're familiar with the surroundings. And for some people, that means mining. So that's why the issue is difficult, and that's why I urge us to stay in touch. Um, but you know, it is it is among the most divisive political issues in our state. There's no question. Uh, from a Republican standpoint, they're very clear. I'm with the mining company. I'm with the dig here, dig there, dig now, dig later, dig, 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 whatever. Do whatever you want to do. Just get paid, and you know. And it's, but but for people who want to be good environmental stewards and support sustainable economies for local communities. It, it, it's we we we, de, we need to be a little bit more discerning and careful as to how we go about it. But I but I think there are answers, right? Uh, I think the question is, are we going to be patient with each other and stick at the table long enough to find them? You know, Keith, you're you're right on trying to look look to the future. That that these are legitimate concerns to have work with dignity, thriving communities, and, and those interests are, are essential to be 
taken seriously. And, and that's why we do have this office up in Ely to have those, those tough and real discussions to try to find solutions that are sustainable and, and out there. And, and whether it's having a broadband internet service that's reliable right. and, and system-wide to allow the, the structure for the economy of the future or to have access to healthcare, there, you know, a lot of these communities don't have many doctors, you know, you have to go down to Duluth for, for that. So that those sort of challenges are real to be a thriving community. Some small businesses can't get loans that the, the local financial institutions are geared towards giving loans to, for cabin buyers and, and not for small businesses. So, so those are the things to, that we're really taking seriously at, at, at Friends of the Boundary Waters, realizing that to, in order to protect the wilderness, those communities need to thrive and those human concerns are legitimate and and we want to be part of that conversation and have those tough conversations and then be really engaged in that dialogue yeah and you know and maybe technology has some answers and maybe there there are different things to explore but we should but we should have um ha we have to we i think we should all pledge that the boundary waters is we're in trust to protect it for generations ahead and as far as I'm concerned, as long as we can do that, we can um, have a wide ranging conversation on how everybody wins. Um, I absolutely am committed to the local local economic sustainability. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, the question is, you know, folks have said, well, the mining jobs are high wage and the other ones are not. Well, how do we, well, I mean, can't what if we made the investments around broadband around healthcare? what if we made the proper investments are there new industries are there other are there you know are there ways to go forward to make sure we have a strong viable economic uh, outlook for people who want to live uh in the north country i think that's the question in front of us um yeah so a uh, quick question here uh you know You've seen with respect to twin metals, you know, uh, Obama makes a decision, then, you know, uh, Trump makes a decision and Biden makes a decision and they're sort of flip flopping. Do you feel like anything needs to change at the federal level? Right. So, so you know, things don't change at the whim of administrations. Do, do, do you have yeah, any I think we I think we I think people deserve some 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 uh, some some reliability, some certainty. You know this. You know we sh we need to take action to just say, you know this this one's not going to go through, but that doesn't mean other ones other places can't. And what and what are we saying even about uh, um, we we we're we're, we're digging car, uh, copper out of the ground, but what is the state of our um, of our uh, of our you know replenishing the the copper copper that's already been produced. I mean, the, you can recycle copper, you know, and we should try to. And I, how much of copper are we just throwing in a landfill? I mean, you know, we have so much electronic waste that is going on, you know. I mean, and how many of us uh, on this very call have uh, old cell phones, old toasters, old uh, computers, uh, and there might be things contained within these machines that that are now obsolete and we don't use anymore that could be the answer to some of these needs for certain uh precious metals uh so that we can um you know make the world run right 
But we've got to be a little bit more creative. We've got to be a little bit more patient. And we've got to work harder to make sure that we can get these answers uh, that we all need. You know, that, that's an excellent point, Keith, that if we just increased our recycling rate of copper just a little bit, we could eliminate the, the need for the production from a polymer or twin metals. It's just extraordinary. If we even just met the European standard, we would not need the, the amount of, of uh, copper that would be produced by polymet. So it's really, you know, having a comprehensive approach and not just being tunnel vision on extraction only as, as, as a way to get the, the resources is, 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 really, is really important to, to think more broadly and more comprehensively about, about all that. Well, Chris, I bet you people don't know what you just, didn't know what you just shared. I didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, but I mean, people think about that. Mm -hmm. And and so, but we need to develop a campaign and say, look, here are all your sources of copper that if we were to recycle it, we could, um, you know, we could, we could protect, protect and preserve uh, natural wonders around us. Um, we've got to find ways to be, uh, to message that as well. You know, it's a, it's an, it's an important thing that more folks should know. I mean, that's why environmental education continues to be something that's so critical. And hopefully our conversation today is uh, gonna help folks know a little bit more than they knew before. And uh, so I, I've got uh, another question here, Keith. Um, you know, the folks on this call might be aware, you know, through Star Tribune articles that, that your office has been named, you know, I think, what is it, two years in a row as a, a top workplace, uh, I think both at the state and federal level. What right. makes, what makes a good leader and what makes you a good leader? Well, I, here's the thing. I think the, the best way to think about being a good leader is to ask yourself, how is it? What's, your, what's the quality of life for the people in the organization who are not the, you know, the, the, uh, the main, you know, the, 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 the face of the organization, right? So like, you know, so you're like the executive director of a, uh, of uh, the, you know, the Friends of the Boundary Waters. Uh, I mean, for people who work there, what's it like for them? And if, and if you're a leader who never even asked that question, you know, what's it like for the people in the organization that I'm leading? Then I think it's very difficult to be an effective leader because you won't have empathy for the people who you are relying on to make the organization go. Let's just be honest, us so-called leaders we don't really write the briefs. We don't stand up and make the arguments. We don't, uh, we're not the main organizers. Mostly what we do is talk to the public and do fundraising and stuff like that. Well, the truth is the people who are doing the online groundwork uh, have got to be part of the decision-making process. So, you know, uh, as you know, Max, we, you know, we, we, I tried to set up uh, as many avenues as I could to make sure that I knew what, um, the most recent hire was thinking and the longest serving person and everybody in between. And then you synthesize it. You know, you, 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 if you know everything, it's hard to, to be a good leader because then you can't learn anything. Right. And so I think being an effective leader means that, you know, you open your mind up, you get humble, uh, you understand you're fundamentally a servant, uh, and your main, your, and your main job is to create a culture that keeps the mission for first and foremost in the minds of the people who uh, you're asking to work with you. So that's that's so, some of the things that I keep in mind in 
you know, it's been a fun and an exciting adventure, you know, and, you know, some folks you work with for a while and then they move, go on to do other things and some folks stick around longer. But the, at the end of the day, you know, it's just a pleasure to be pursuing the public interest. Uh, and I want to thank you guys for what you do for the Boundary Waters and for water and for our, our natural world. And I would just say that uh, it's not any of us are not doing we're not, we're not doing the wrong thing. But we should ask ourselves if we're doing enough of the right thing. You know, <laughs> there might be a few more things we can squeeze out, you know. Great. Thank, thank you, Keith. And we're uh, near the end of our time here. Keith, do you have some final words for our audience this afternoon? Yes, I do. You know, um, visit the Boundary Waters in the summer. Visit in the, in the, in the winter. Look at the look at the beauty of the of, of the of the water, but also the wind. Watch the trees sway in the breeze. Look at the smiles on the faces of the people you're with. You know, go out there to contemplate, go out there to sing, go out there to enjoy. But just remember that we're only borrowing it. We're only borrowing it. It's just in our care for a little while, and then it'll be for somebody else to enjoy. Uh, let's commit it, commit to it in the long term. Protect it for generations to come seven generations at least so it's been a wonder talking to you guys and i look forward to seeing you out there on the water paddling the canoe it'll be great thank you keith for those inspiring words and for joining us today and for everyone out there thank you for listening to this podcast we're an extension of you our supporters and you are the strength of our organization for more than 45 years Friends of the Boundary Waters has been the leading voice for protecting the Boundary Waters. From leading the fight against the proposed copper sulfide mines, to bringing kids from diverse backgrounds into the wilderness, to supporting thriving communities near the Boundary Waters. We look forward to having you join us again on the next Friends of the Boundary Waters podcast.